Welcome to episode four at Happier Work, Happier Life. I'm Max von Polmitz. I'm handling the podcast today. In episode four, we've got Julian Schillinger here, the co-founder of Privé Technologies, um, sharing with us some incredible things about his fintech business, voted the fastest growing tech company in 2017 by Deloitte. Um, and what they work on is a lot of wealth management solutions for the banking sector. And if you're interested in fintech, if you're looking for a job in fintech, you have to listen to this episode. Julian Schillinger here from Privé Technologies. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just wanted to start this uh, this episode off with a small personality test. Um, you know, we're trying to understand how different founders and entrepreneurs behave. So let me give you four questions really quick off the cuff. Um, so are you a dreamer or a doer? I'm more the doer, actually. Okay, good, good. Um, two, at a dinner party, are you the guy who talks to everyone or do you kind of pick three people and get to know them? I do talk to a lot of people, but that's actually historically not my nature. I'm rather an introvert. I learned programming when I was 11 years old. I spent probably most of my young years in the basement with a computer. Um, so, but uh, sort of acquired a bit of social skills along the way. Yeah. Well, that's important. So, uh, n- number three, um, holiday planning. Do you have an itinerary or do you just go and show up? Absolutely no itinerary. None. Okay, yeah. wow. And then lastly, you know, if you have a conversation similar to this podcast, afterwards, are you thinking about it? Are you worried about what you said or do you just kind of keep going on? You haven't seen my schedule, so there's just simply no time to think about it afterwards. I maybe maybe get tonight or over the weekend to think about it. Then I sometimes reflect on stuff. But I generally, I, I prefer to look forward. And um, unless something specifically happened, which I need to analyze, uh, I typically don't go that much in the retrospective. Okay. Well, I mean, the reason I ask these questions is because clearly every founder comes from a different background, mm. right? And it's a lot of the founding team has to do with the type of teams that we create and we build for companies. And so maybe run me through a bit about your guys' founding team, um, you know, who you are, um, what, what, what made you guys get together and, and ultimately motivated you to start this company, Private Technologies. Yeah, so basically my co-founder is, is, is Charles Wong. So I worked with him at, at JP Morgan. We were in um, structured products and selling them to financial intermediaries. So financial intermediaries are like private banks, retail banks, or insurance companies who package up the product. Um, in some sort of format to make it accessible to the end investors of all different retail all the way to super high net worth uh, investors. And when we worked there, we basically realized that regulation is changing after the financial crisis, that consumer expectation is changing, and they no longer just want to be sold the most expensive product. They want this, let me call it 360 personal advice. And we realized that a lot of the people who worked in the industry couldn't add an efficient ratio just be turned into portfolio counselors. So we saw that opportunity to digitize that. But it's kind of interesting and unusual because we both came basically from front office kind of perspective and then went into technology, which at that point was considered something completely crazy because you're, why would you do something like IT if you can be a front office banker? And when, when was this? This was nine years ago? And that was 2011, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and, and what, what, uh, and what drove kind of the perseverance over the last nine years to keep at it? Well, I, I think it's really the vision of what we were trying to create. Um, we saw there's a big issue um, with basically the gap between uh, the rich and the poor, right? And when people say that, they always talk about the um, income gap. Also, this guy makes more money than this guy. 
But there's actually a much bigger aspect to this, which is the wealth gap. And um, if you look at even if tomorrow everyone would make the same amount of money, the gap between the rich and the poor as a percentage basis would still get bigger and bigger. Why is that? Because if you have 50 million US dollars, you get access to very good financial advice. What does that mean? You take more, get more return for a certain amount of risk you take. It's what's called risk-adjusted return. But if you have $50,000, you don't get the same amount of return for each unit of risk you take because you don't have access and cannot pay for good advice. So we really believe that through digitization, better advice will be available to more clients. Um, and as a result, that gap will be reduced or at least grow less fast as it would grow otherwise. I see. I see. Okay. So, so this is kind of in the world of what for laymen, for us who don't know much about banking, right? So this is the fintech world, right? That's the fintech world. And, and what can you run me through a bit or our listeners a bit through what does this mean through wealth management? Because you said a lot there. But I think from a layman perspective, what are you actually solving for? What's the, what's the main problem that, that I should know as a consumer? Yeah, so, so from a consumer perspective, it's really the uh, model which is changing. So the whole world is moving from a commission-driven model mm. where the banker makes money out of the fees they're charging you. So like if I want to buy stocks, Correct. the, the banker is going to take a small fee every time I buy a stock from him. Correct. So okay. the banker's interest by design is misaligned with yours because his interest is to get you to buy and sell as much as you can. Okay. As opposed to get you in the right product and let you sit with the right product. Because my product's what might change with time as I'm getting older, younger, the different Correct. needs I have in my but life. But these are slow changes and the economic scenarios may change, right? But it's not what's called churning. It's like getting you to buy and sell. The okay. same way with other products, you use stock as an example, but there are other products like mutual funds and structured products where there's a very high upfront commission on it, um, at least in certain cases, and that misaligns the incentive of the banker. So it's very important, and the banks actually came around to realize that that's not good for themselves mm. because they make more money in the short run, but even if they advise the clients in the wrong way, the clients will have less money to spend with them, and they may be unhappy, and they have a regulatory risk around that. Okay. So actually what this whole regulatory change has driven, what the difference in consumer expectation has driven, and what's the overall difference the banks are taking from a view perspective on the whole thing has basically driven that both the consumers, the banks, and us as technology providers actually all sit in the same boat and have all in the same interest in getting a better product out there at a lower cost to a wide audience. And that's quite interesting because normally like the way I grew up and I learned about capitalism and it always seemed to me like oh if I make more money it means somebody else is losing out right right, right. that zero-sum game and mm. um, if you you always benefit at expense of somebody else and this is one of these unique opportunities um, in today's world where basically we make money as a technology provider because the banks and financial institutions are paying us fees for our technology building blocks but the financial institutions also make more money and have lower risk by providing the clients a better product and providing a better product to a wider audience at a lower cost for them. Okay, interesting. Wow, what a solution. And so the so what what so you you were saying your your main part of this business is the technology side, right? And and yeah. that's that's you as the founder. Talk talk to me a bit more how you came into that, maybe how it relates to how you what you were doing before or or how that compares to what you're doing now. Yeah, so, so I was always um, a technology guy originally. Okay, yeah. So as I mentioned before, when I was 11 years old, I learned how to program. 
um, say for me, 10 years old. So a, a friend of mine in primary school, his father was a software engineer. And he said, well, this friend of mine and another friend and his own son and myself, he would give us like a, a, a course. And it must have been 1990 or something like that, or yeah. uh, maybe 91. And then basically we went to, he set up something in the basement. We still had these very big um, seven-inch floppy disks. And not the punch cards anymore, yeah, but yeah, the floppy disk right. and monochrome screens. And um, basically, I learned how to build, how to program basic. And I just loved the stuff. I loved that I could just create logic in a system and it would then execute what I wanted to do. So I found that was very intriguing for me. And sort of from there, sort of, I started building my own stuff in the basement of my parents at night, my own software code. And then I think in 1997, um, I started my first company in 1998, um, which was so basically how old were you? 18. I'm born 1918. Um, so, so basically that software was basically doing a new way of how to build websites. So that was sort of the onset of the dot-com crisis mm -hmm. and everyone was looking for more efficient ways um, how to do that. So me and one of my friends from high school, we started a company called Communic or Communicate and we were from Munich, so it's Communic. Um, and we, we started building this, these website design software, like two, three people. Um, and sort of also just reasonably access, successful, like a hundred thousand euro revenue by the time I was 21 per annum. Three not people, bad, not, not bad, bad yeah. for a student. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of beer money there. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it got interrupted by me going to the military. And then after that, I went to university. So I ran the software company on the side. Mm. I studied business computer science. Um, so it's a mix of business degree and a computer degree with a focus on bank informatics. Okay. So bank informatics is sort of that area of how do you design the bank systems and stuff like that. And from there, then um, I ended up here in Hong Kong in the front office though, not in technology with, with JP Morgan, as I said before, we met Charles, um, where um, I was not in technology, but the first thing I did is when I was sitting there at three o'clock in the morning, was pricing the fifth iteration of some structured product. I built something I called RoboPrice. Mm. Not the RoboAdvisor, it's called RoboPrice, so that the salespeople could go into my machine and they could type in the different parameters of the product and it would come up as a backtesting, a term sheet, and a price, uh, indicative price. So that from that point on, I could go home at 9 p.m. and still got <laughs> all the pricing done for the day. But it was quite interesting because the... They ultimately, they, um, there was no IT infrastructure to run any of this, right? So I went to IT and I said, guys, this is a very good efficiency enhancer. So how can I get this installed on every computer? Or how can you set up a server <laughs> to run this for me? And they're like, yeah, we've got a backlog for the, la for the next 36 months. Yeah. And it's going to cost like a million dollars. So I was like, so I secretly, I got a second machine under my desk. And it was official JP Morgan machine, but I installed installed a tool on there so they could just go to my IP address and log in directly. And one day IP, IT came along and said like, are you running a web server on your computer? It was like this saw all this network traffic coming from Australia, from all the countries we surf going right. all on my machine. I was like, eh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. So, so that's, that sort of was quite interesting because that, that showed us that Back then, now it's better, but back then a lot of the bank IT was quite inefficient. Mm. They were focusing on the wrong efficiency improve improvements. And is that, I mean, so speaking of that, that's an interesting point, right? I mean, starting a company is always such a challenge because you have big companies you're competing against, right? Especially in your space. Yeah. I assume, you know, most of the large banks are trying to build something in-house, yeah. right? They've got now, I mean, I, I was reading that Goldman Sachs has like 
thousand engineers or something crazy. Um, how, how does that what what is that how does that change the dynamic when when you're running a startup? Yeah, so when we first started in 2011, the whole build versus buy model in right. the banks um, in the area we were focusing on, which is like digital advice and digital portfolio management, was very much tailored towards build and not buy. Mm. So the first time when we spoke to some of the big banks, the first thing they said to us, well, why would we buy from you? We have 10,000 engineers. But this so, was already 10 years ago. This already was 10 years okay. ago. And I was like, well, we can just build this ourselves. I, what I heard a lot is like, I guess we could build this ourselves. Okay. But it's actually the wrong question to ask because the question you should be asking is, should you build it yourself? Right? And that has fundamentally changed. We are sort of somewhat lucky on being on the right track that early on, um, that basically by now, this is a perfectly established model. I mean, everyone inside a financial institution these days asks, why should we build this ourselves? Can we not buy the solution in or license the solution in? And so that's why this is a fast-growing area. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you were guys were, I think, I was reading you're the fastest-growing tech company in Hong Kong in 2017 by Deloitte, Correct, um, yeah. which is which is incredibly impressive what is driving most of that growth did you say is, is it timing is it is it an incredible sales team what's driving that i wish i could say it's <laughs> a management's uh, foresight yeah, and exactly. expertise amazing uh, founders yeah. so i think there's the saying as um, a, a prepared mind um, at the right point in time mm. um prepared mind meet, meets uh, meets luck that's that's probably one of the key factors here we were a little bit too early, but just a little bit, and we pretty much timed it quite well. So we got into the right thing at the right point in time. And that, uh, that's probably the main factor. And obviously, if you're a complete idiot and can't get it together, and if you're, you suck at execution, if you don't have domain understanding, if you can't sell, there's a lot of other facets, of course, yeah. a lot of other ducks which need to be in a row for it to happen. But you can be the best execution, the best idea, the best vision. If you're just at the wrong time, that just doesn't help you much. Mm. And I've seen this a lot. There's a lot of different ideas. Um, our first product was called Virtual Fund. So we basically have a product which basically allows you to invest in something which looks like a fund, but you invest in the underlying securities directly. So the system buys the underlying securities directly rather than you giving the fund manager money who then buys it for you. Okay, so, so you, you kind of bypass the fund manager? You, well, you still have the manager, but you bypass the administrator, the custodian. So it's a more cost-efficient way of um, investing. Okay. The, and, and we were way ahead of our time with that product. So from there, we backtracked and doing um, other stuff like reporting, compliance solutions. And now we see a lot of interest in the virtual fund technology, but it's now seven, eight years later mm. from when we initially launched it. So I think it's... If there's a second factor to having the right timing, I think it's flexibility. Being able to accept that, uh, you know, sometimes you just have a bet which is maybe not be at the right point in time. You want to backtrack, focus on something else first, put it on the shelf and bring it back later. Uh, which is a very non-German, I'm German, so it's a very non-German thing to do. Um, it's more like, you, you know, most, most engineering-driven people, they pick a point on a map and they say, well, look, this is where we need to be. And they draw the straight line and they come up with a plan how to get there. For those of you who can't see right now, he's drawing a straight line on the table. <laughs> exactly. So the problem with that is that that allows very little validation along the way, whether you're on the right track and whether right. you're on the right track at the point, right point in time. 
So, and I think there's also a little bit sort of the Asian components. When you speak to Asian business people, they much more link thinking about the similar thing, but they basically say, which stepping stones are along the way? Mm-hmm. How can I hop from one stone to the other to get there? And each point, look around, revalidate whether I'm on the right track at the right point in time. Uh, that's a lovely, that's a lovely image. I think, um, I mean, most of what startups are trying to do, I guess, is speed up those, those milestones, right? And yep. then jump faster. Um, well, talk to me a bit about then, I mean, sure, over nine years, I imagine there's been quite a lot of bumps in the road um, and failures. Maybe maybe give us a sense of, you know, what you've seen as some of the harder days and, and how you how you handled that. Well, there, if you're a young company, I think it's it's generally quite or quite difficult, right? Because you're you're strapped off resources. You don't have enough money to fund your business. You don't have enough not the right people on board to grow it. Uh, you don't have any clients. So the early days is really, really tough. I think a lot of people have sort of this glorified romantic image about this lonely wolf who's out there and uh, weathers the storm. But it's it's not a particularly pleasant experience. How I, long were you guys just the founding team? Well, we, we hired the first couple of guys within the first couple of months, but right. uh, we didn't have institutional funding for, for many, many years. So right. we had to bootstrap the company for the majority of the time we had. So it was pretty much like, well, you need to make sure you get secure that client contract in order to do that investment in your product, which is not a bad thing to do because it's tough, but it's not a bad thing to do because you prove that you can run a profitable business very early on in it. For, make sure that you're very laser focused on what you need to build. Mm. And you're very much in tune with your clients because if you don't find anyone who's willing to pay for it, you should be building it. But how, how, I mean, the landscape has changed so dramatically in the last three years with literally billions of dollars going into fintech investing, especially as you mentioned before, robo advisory, wealth management advisory. Um, what do you see the difference? I mean, when you look at some of your competitors who probably have raised significant amounts of capital, um, how, how does that change their outlook? Is is their team built differently? Um, what do you see as your competitive advantage? Yeah, so so I think um, the one thing what happened to us early on, there was a lot of money in fintech already in 2012, 2013, but it was all for competitive business models. So the VCs came to the conclusion that the banks are stupid, the bankers are stupid, and right. the tech guys are going to kill the banks. Mm. That never happened because they didn't factor in regulation. They didn't factor in brand building. They didn't factor in that once you have to monetize a client through multiple business lines. So if you go to a big commercial bank in Hong Kong and you have like you're in a mass affluent segment, let's say 100,000 US dollar plus, they factor in that they sell your credit cards, they sell your mortgage, mm-hmm. they sell your loan, they sell your wealth management product, FX, um, and maybe a brokerage account. It's a comprehensive solution. It's a comprehensive solution. So they re they make back the money from your client acquisition costs through multiple channels. Right. If you have multiple channels, you have end up as a very high complexity of the business. And sort of that's what I think these VCs back then didn't factor in that it costs you that you only sell the, the person a wealth management product and nothing of the other stuff. And you don't have a brand, it costs you actually even more to acquire the client. Mm-hmm. And you can even make less revenue out of them. And so this whole idea, what you saw with other things which came up in 2011 or 2010, 2012, like WhatsApp, for example, my cost of using WhatsApp is essentially zero. My risk of trying it out, except maybe somebody else reading my messages about where to meet for drinks, um, is, is very low. And it has a viral component because once I use it, my friend is more likely to use it. Right. 
So the decline in position cost kind of comes through the virality of the thing. And that really didn't fully happen in finance at any point in time because people like to keep their finances confidential. Right. So as a result, I actually my interest of somebody else seeing my account balances or knowing what I invest in is not a very common thing. It does happen. It's called social trading, but it's rather the exception than the norm for most people. And maybe that's going to change over the next couple of years. So the whole value proposition of competitive business models, I think, in the wealth management space was very misguided initially. And it took the industry a couple of years to um, adjust and, and to understand that. So uh, starting 2015, 16, people started shifting to cooperative business models like ours, where we work with financial institutions or even non-financial institutions to provide them. That's what we call the bank-in-a-box um, model where they can automate digital wealth management. And it's only at that point in time where we also actually had the luxury to get access to institutional funding to grow the business faster. But the important point is a lot of the businesses which get funded very early on, there's a big question mark whether they ever can be profitable. Because on day one, they started getting money, they're raising more money, raising more money, raising more money. And similar to like an, an Uber, for example, where nobody's really sure whether they're ever going to be a profitable company. Or Amazon proven that they can be a profitable company, but it took them over a decade to do so. Um, we have this experience that we know we can operate profitable uh, very early on. And now it's just scaling up the machine. So if you put $1 in, you get $1.10 out. And now you put $2 in or $10 in, you get $11 out. Mm. And so how does that, so talk to me a bit about how, how kind of the team has evolved mm. um, now with institutional capital, now with kind of the timing, as you said, um, fundamentally changing the business. Um, you know, how big is the team now? Where's the focus? Um, and, and where do you see it kind of going from here? Yeah, so it's, it's over 100 people now. Wow. Um, so it's the, the, the thing which has changed from the early days, the early days when we're like 10, 20 people, kind of everyone runs around as like uh, like a headless chicken and solves every problem which is which is there and there's uh, no specialization so everyone is sort of a generalist and looking at problems end to end and and that's sort of in the early days what, what gets you to the next step and uh, at some point that becomes it's very difficult to scale so so basically what we see now is like we have much more specialization we broke down the company by different product lines we have a project management office who make sure everything stays on track uh, we have a platform team who provide shared services to these different product lines. So it's a little bit like having these little speedboats, but them all being in a uh, managed context where there's a lot of shared services provided. A little bit like an incubator, actually. Okay, interesting. And the one of the things I don't hear people talk enough about, but I've scaled a few businesses as well, and we don't talk enough about how the team has to evolve and what happens to those generalists. Right. I mean, have you guys, was that a challenge? Was it, was it a matter of losing some team members because, you know, they just couldn't evolve with the company? Was it a matter of changing their roles? I mean, how did you guys deal with that? Well, I would say most generalists are actually quite suitable to then run off some of the teams, right? Okay. Because with, if you're a team head and we set it up as cross-functional teams, mm. so our product team heads, for example, they need to run um, developers. Um, they need to run product managers. They need to run sales. They need to run application support. So if you've been in that generalist role, it actually puts you in a good position to run one of our teams. Okay. So and that's happened over time. So start early in a startup as a generalist is your advice. 
Correct. I think you learn the ropes and then you're always that natural person, the go-to person for any questions and that creates leadership, right? Mm. I mean, I think people always mistake two different aspects. The one is administration and the other one is leadership, right? Just running stuff on a spreadsheet and figuring out what needs to be done um, ain't going to get you a following, right? And especially in a startup where you don't have that strong brand attraction, you don't have that massive HR infrastructure, it's even more important that you generate leadership. So one of the ways to do that is people go to you to ask you the questions. Oh, because you're a, you're an expert in kind of what you're an you expert mean. Okay. in all these different facets, right? Okay, interesting. So let's let's talk about that. I kind of let's talk a bit more about the leadership side. Um, what do you see then about you guys developing new leaders within the company, um, and how does that impact kind of the culture and the business? Maybe run us through a bit about you know what does the culture look like in a in a team of a hundred. Yeah, so, so the culture is still um, very much a, a little bit of a go-getter culture. So we do favor talent, which is pretty much entrepreneurial in themselves, that they can figure out things by themselves. Mm. I think once we're a thousand people company, this may change, right? Then as a thousand people company, you can have a very large learning and development team, a very large HR team, and you can bring it down to the next level of specialization. Uh, we're not at that point yet. So naturally, people who join our company are required to be pretty much flexible in finding out and, and learning things about themselves and ask questions. So we have a very helpful culture. The culture is very much that if somebody has a question, uh, everyone is happy to answer it, but you cannot expect to be spoon-fed. So if you just go there and sit there and expect somebody to come to you and say, look, this is step one, then you do step two, then you do step three, and now you need to learn that. Um, that's not necessarily the culture we have. Why is that? Because if, if you have to teach somebody step one to 10 exactly what they need to do and repeat that every day, if that would be the case with a technology company, we would have, would have already automated what the person is doing. Mm. Right? So we don't have much repetitive work, if any at all. And as a result of that, we need people who can sort of adjust quickly to different environments and different questions. So we typically hire people who take joy out of intellectually solving a problem. And, and that's the right kind of skill set for us because these people are used to to figure figure things out and they like to do that. And how do you how do you hire for something like that? Is that is that through the interview process? Is it through referrals, the references? What do you how do you I mean that's a quite a unique um, skill set, I would say, that you're looking for. Yeah, it's mostly through the interview process. So I think it's very tif- difficult to read from the CVs because even large companies, you've got many entrepreneurs right, right, who right, actually excel in that and, and do exactly that in large companies. So it's not like, oh, you need to hire from another startup or you need to hire from a large company. That does tell you very little. I think it's really in the interview process when we ask them, how do you solve questions? How do you solve problems? And ask them to take us through the process of how they solve these issues. That ultimately helps us to understand the thinking mode. And, you know, you get certain people say, yeah, I have a problem. And then I go to my manager and it's his job to make a decision and solve the problem. And you've got other people and say, well, I had this problem. And then I took these and these steps to understand it better. And then I had a value proposition of how it could be solved. And at that point, I ran it by my manager just to make sure he's on board. And then I went into execution. Right, right. And I, I do think large corporations are changing. I think they're increasingly start to understand the value of these kind of talents because it's... Repetitive processes also there start to being automated through companies like us, for example. Mm. Well, look, I think um, I think it's, it's what it's March twenty seventh right now. So I'm um, here in Hong Kong, and I think it. I have to mention the coronavirus and and all the changes that are happening right now. 
So maybe kind of run us through a little bit about how that's impacted your business, your sales cycles, um, or, or how you see that impact in 2020 altogether. Is there, I assume there's pro- hopefully a silver lining in all this for, for startups, but maybe, uh, maybe run us through your thoughts. Yeah, so, so obviously it has impacted us from a perspective that we need to operate the offices in a different, different mm-hmm. way. Uh, we have offices across the world in Europe and Asia. Um, all of Europe is completely on home office for the second week now already. I think in Asia, we partly have AB teams in place where half the people are in the office, the other half are from home. Um, so there's a significantly higher percentage of people who are not in the office. Uh, which um, obviously creates its own kind of challenges, right? Um, it's it's interesting because it basically highlights much more where there's deficiencies in the management process. If you have a perfect management process, that means it doesn't matter where people are, you will always know exactly what they're doing and you will exactly produce the same output. So it's actually quite interesting to see that because it helps you as a manager to realize where you need to improve. Um, and actually teaches you to run the company in a better way, even once people are back in the office. Mm. So that's sort of the one side we see, like from a business continuity perspective, more working from home, these kind of things. And from a business development perspective, this is a big opportunity for us because ultimately the, our clients um, will be investing more and more in digitization of wealth management. So before there was a question, well, said we, shall we set up a new investment or wealth center shall we hire more relationship managers shall we hire more invest investment consultants shall we set up a new branch shall we build more atms i think a lot of these branches are not going to reopen up and sort of the investment budget will be more and more directed to technology services which the financial institutions to a part will do in-house and to a very large extent will give to vendors vendors like us wow I mean, this is the best part about being in the startup world is I think every macroeconomic trend or even a situation like we find ourselves in now always creates opportunity. Yeah. And, and it's our jobs to stay positive even in that space. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for joining, Julian. Um, really insightful conversation. Um, I, I was hoping maybe you'd want to add a few extra things about, about private technologies and, and what's happening right now today. Yeah, so, so we're still in absolute hiring mode for the reasons I stated. Um, our business is growing. I think our prospects actually increased over the next couple of years. Um, so especially for, for engineering, we're, we're still in absolute hiring mode. So if you're interested, uh, please send your CV to um, privatetechnologies.com slash careers. And we'll be happy to have a chat. Okay, so check out their website. Um, if you're an engineer, get going. There's always opportunity, even in a crisis. Um, Thank you so much again. Thank you.